0: part twenty of the naval war of eighteen twelve by theodore roosevelt this librivox recording is in the public domain part twenty moreover packenham was planning a flank attack under his orders a canal was being dug from the head of the bayou up which the british had come across the plain to the mississippi this was to permit the passage of a number of ships boats on which one division was to be ferried to the opposite bank of the river where it was to move up and by capturing the breastworks and water battery on the west side flank jackson's main position on the east side footnote a particular feature in the assault was our cutting a canal into the mississippi to convey a force to the right bank which might surprise the enemy's batteries on that side i do not know how far this measure was relied on by the general but as he ordered and made his assault at daylight i imagine he did not place much dependence upon it codrington volume one page three hundred and thirty five end of footnote when this canal was nearly finished the expected reinforcements two thousand strong under general lambert arrived and by the evening of the seventh all was ready for the attack which was to be made at daybreak on the following morning. Packenham had under him nearly 10,000 footnote. James, volume 2, page 373, says the British rank and file, amounted to 8,153 men, including 1,200 seamen and marines. The only other place where he speaks of the latter is in recounting the attack on the right bank when he says about two hundred were with thornton while both the admirals cochrane and codrington made the number three hundred so he probably underestimates their number throughout and at least three hundred can be added making fifteen hundred sailors and marines and a total of eight thousand four hundred fifty three this number is corroborated by major mcdougall the officer received sir edward's body in his arms when was killed he says as quoted in the memoirs of british generals distinguished during the peninsula war by john william cole london eighteen fifty six volume two page three hundred and sixty four that after the battle and the loss of two thousand thirty-six men we had still an effective force of six thousand four hundred making a total before the attack of eight thousand four hundred thirty six rank and file calling it eight thousand four hundred and fifty and adding see ante note ten thirteen point three percent for the officers sergeants and trumpeters we get about nine thousand six hundred men end of footnote fighting men fifteen hundred of these under colonel thornton were to cross the river and make the attack on the west bank packenham himself was to superintend the main assault on the east bank, which was to be made by the British right under General Gibbs while the left moved forward under General Keane and General Lambert commanded the reserve. Footnote letter of Major General John Lambert to Earl Bathurst, january tenth, eighteen fifteen, and a footnote. Jackson's footnote four thousand six hundred and ninety-eight on the east bank according to the official report of adjutant-general robert butler for the morning of january eighth the details are as follows at batteries one hundred and fifty four command of colonel ross six hundred and seventy one regulars and seven hundred forty two louisiana militia fourteen hundred thirteen command of general carroll tennesseeans and somewhat under five hundred kentuckians fifteen hundred sixty two general coffee's command tennesseeans and about two hundred and fifty louisiana militia eight hundred thirteen major hind's dragoons two hundred and thirty colonel slaughter's command five hundred and twenty six for a total of four thousand six hundred ninety eight these figures tally almost exactly with those given by major latour except that he omits all reference to colonel slaughter's command thus reducing the number to about four thousand one hundred nor can i anywhere find any allusion to slaughter's command as taking part in the battle and it is possible that these troops were the five hundred kentuckians ordered across the river by jackson in which case his whole force but slightly exceeded five thousand men on the west bank there were five hundred and forty-six Louisiana Militia, 260 of the 1st Regiment, 176 of the 2nd, and 110 of the 6th. Jackson had ordered 500 Kentucky troops to be sent to reinforce them. Only 400 started, of whom but 180 had arms. Seventy more received arms from the naval arsenal, and thus a total of 250 armed men were added the five hundred and forty six already on the west bank and a footnote position was held by a total of five thousand five hundred men footnote two thousand kentucky militia had arrived but in wretched plight only five hundred had arms though pieces were found for about two hundred and fifty more and thus jackson's army received an addition of seven hundred and fifty very badly disciplined soldiers hardly one-third of the kentucky troops so long expected are armed and the arms they have are not fit for use letter of general jackson to the secretary of war january third having kept a constant watch on the british jackson had rightly concluded that they would make the main attack on the east bank and had accordingly kept the bulk of his force on that side his works consisted simply of a mud breastwork with a ditch in front of it which stretched in a straight line from the river on his right across the plain and some distance into the morass that sheltered his left there was a small unfinished redoubt in front of the breastworks on the river bank thirteen pieces of artillery were mounted on the works footnote Almost all British writers underestimate their own force and enormously magnify that of the Americans. Allison, for example, quadruples Jackson's relative strength, writing about 6,000 combatants were on the British side. A slender force, to attack double their number, entrenched to the teeth in works bristling with bayonets and loaded with heavy artillery, Instead of double, he should have said half. The bayonets only bristled metaphorically, as less than a quarter of the Americans were armed with them. And the British breaching batteries had a heavier load of artillery than did the American lines. Gleig says that, to come nearer the truth, he will choose a middle course, and suppose their whole force to be about 25,000 men page 325 Gleag, by the way in speaking of the battle itself mentions one most startling evolution of the americans namely that without so much as lifting their faces above the ramparts they swung their firelocks by one arm over the wall and discharged them at the british if any one will try to perform this feat with a long heavy rifle held in one hand and with his head hid behind a wall so as not to see the object aimed at he will get a good idea of the likelihood of any man in his senses attempting it footnote. on the right was posted the seventh regular infantry four hundred thirty strong then came seven hundred forty louisiana militia both french creoles and men of color and comprising 30 New Orleans riflemen who were Americans, and 240 regulars of the 44th Regiment, while the rest of the line was formed by nearly 500 Kentuckians and over 1,600 Tennesseans under Carroll and Coffee, with 250 Creole militia in the morass on the extreme left to guard the head of a bayou. In the rear were 230 dragoons, chiefly from Mississippi, and some other troops in reserve, making in all 4,700 men on the east bank. The works on the west bank were further downstream and were very much weaker. Commodore Patterson had thrown up a water battery of nine guns, three long twenty-fours and six long 12s pointing across the river, and intended to take in flank any foe attacking jackson this battery was protected by some strong earthworks mounting three field pieces which were thrown up just below it and stretched from the river about two hundred yards into the plain the line of defence was extended by a ditch for about a quarter of a mile farther when it ended and from there to the morass half a mile distant there were no defensive works at all "'General Morgan, a very poor militia officer,' footnote, "'he committed every possible fault except showing lack of courage. "'He placed his works at a very broad instead of a narrow part of the plain "'against the advice of Latour, who had Jackson's approval. "'Latour, page 167. "'He continued his earthworks but a very short distance inland.' making them exceedingly strong in front and absolutely defenseless on account of their flanks being unprotected he did not mount the lighter guns of the water battery on his lines as he ought to have done having a force of eight hundred men too weak anyhow he promptly divided it and finally in the fight itself he stationed a small number of absolutely raw troops in a thin line on the open with their flank in the air while a much larger number of older troops were kept to defend a much shorter line behind the strong breastwork with their flanks covered, and a footnote, was in command with a force of 550 Louisiana militia, some of them poorly armed, and on the night before the engagement he was reinforced by 250 Kentuckians poorly armed, undisciplined, and worn out with fatigue. Footnote Latour, page one hundred and seventy and a footnote. All through the night of the seventh, a strange murmurous clangor arose from the British camp and was borne on the moist air to the lines of their slumbering foes. The blows of pickaxe and spade as the ground was thrown up into batteries by gangs of workmen, the rumble of the artillery as it was placed in position the measured tread of the battalions as they shifted their places or marched off under Thornton, all these and the thousand other sounds of warlike preparation were softened and blended by the distance into one continuous humming murmur, which struck on the ears of the American sentries with ominous foreboding for the morrow. By midnight, Jackson had risen and was getting everything in readiness to hurl back the blow that he rightly judged was soon to fall on his front. Before the dawn broke, his soldiery was all on the alert. The bronzed and brawny seamen were grouped in clusters around the great guns. The Creole soldiers came of a race whose habit it has ever been to take all phases of life joyously but that morning their gaiety was tempered by a dark undercurrent of fierce anxiety they had more at stake than any other man on the field they were fighting for their homes they were fighting for their wives and their daughters they well knew that the men they were to face were very brave in battle and very cruel in victory footnote to prove this it is only needful to quote from the words of the duke of wellington himself referring it must be remembered to their conduct in a friendly not a hostile country it is impossible to describe to you the irregularities and outrages committed by the troops they are never out of sight of their officers i might also say out of sight of the commanding officers of the regiments that outrages are not committed there is not an outrage of any description which has not been committed on a people who have uniformly received them as friends. I really believe that more plunder and outrages have been committed by this army than by any other that ever was in the field. A detachment seldom marches that a murder or a highway robbery or some act of outrage is not committed by the British soldiers composing it. They have killed eight people since the army returned to Portugal. They really forget everything when plunder or wine is within reach. Footnote. They well knew the fell destruction and nameless foe that awaited their city should the English take it at the sword's point. They feared not for themselves, but in the hearts of the bravest and most careless there lurked a dull terror of what that day might bring upon those they loved. Footnote. That these fears were just can be seen by the following quotations from the works of a British officer, General Napier, who was an eye witness of what he describes. It must be remembered that Cuyad Rodrigo, Bardajos, and San Sebastian were friendly towns, only the garrisons being hostile. Now commenced that wild and desperate wickedness which tarnished the luster, of the soldiers heroism all indeed were not alike for hundreds risked and many lost their lives in striving to stop the violence but the madness generally prevailed and as the worst men were leaders here all the dreadful passions of human nature were displayed shameless rapacity brutal intemperance savage lust cruelty and murder shrieks and piteous lamentations, groans, shouts, implications, the hissing of fires, bursting from the houses, the crashing of doors and windows, the reports of muskets used in violence, resounded for two days and nights in the streets of House On the third, when the city was sacked, when the soldiers were exhausted by their own excesses, the tumult rather subsided than was quelled volume three page three hundred seventy seven and again this storm seemed to be a signal from hell for the perpetration of villainy which would have shamed the most ferocious barbarians of antiquity at rodrigo intoxication and plunder had been the principal object at badajos lost and murder were joined to rapine and drunkenness but at san sebastian the direst the most revolting cruelty was added to the catalogue of crimes One atrocity of which girl of seventeen was the victim staggers the mind by its enormous incredible indescribable barbarity a portuguese adjutant who endeavoured to prevent some wickedness was put to death in the market-place not with sudden violence from a single ruffian but deliberately by a number of english soldiers and the disorder continued until the flames following the steps of the plunderer put an end to his ferocity by destroying the whole town pakenham himself would have certainly done all in his power to prevent excesses and has been foully slandered by many early american writers alluding to these napier remarks somewhat caustically pre-eminently distinguished for detestation of inhumanity and outrage he has been with astounding falsehood represented as instigating his troops to the most infamous excesses but from a people holding millions of their fellow beings in the most horrible slavery while they prate and vaunt of liberty until all men turn in loathing from the sickening folly what can be expected volume five page thirty one Napier possessed, to a very eminent degree, the virtue of being plain-spoken. Elsewhere, Volume 3, page 450, after giving a most admirably fair and just account of the origin of the Anglo-American War, he alludes with a good deal of justice to the Americans of 1812 as a people who, notwithstanding the curse of black slavery which clings to them, adding the most horrible ferocity to the peculiar baseness of their mercantile spirit and rendering their republican vanity ridiculous do in their general government uphold civil institutions which have startled the crazy despotisms of europe End of footnote the tennesseeans were troubled by no such misgivings in saturnine confident silence they lulled behind their mud walls or leaning on their long rifles peered out into the grey fog with savage reckless eyes so hour after hour the two armies stood facing each other in the darkness waiting for the light of day at last the sun rose and as its beams struggled through the morning mist they glinted on the sharp steel bayonets of the english where their scarlet ranks were drawn up in battle array but four hundred yards from the american breastworks there stood the matchless infantry of the island king in the pride of their strength and the splendor of their martial glory and as the haze cleared away they moved forward in stern silence broken only by the angry snarling notes of the brazen bugles at once the american artillery leaped into furious life and ready and quick the more numerous cannon of the invaders responded from their hot feverish lips unshaken amid the tumult of that iron storm the heavy red column moved steadily on toward the left of the american line where the Tennesseans were standing in motionless grim expectancy three-fourths of the open space was crossed and the eager soldiers broke into a run then a fire of hell smote the british column from the breastwork in front of them the white smoke curled thick into the air as rank after rank the wild marksmen of the backwoods rose and fired aiming low and sure as stubble is withered by flame so withered the british column under that deadly fire and aghast at the slaughter the reeling files staggered and gave back packenham fit captain for his valorous host rode to the front and the troops rallying round him sprang forward with ringing cheers but once again the peeling rifle blast beat in their faces and the life of their dauntless leader went out BEFORE ITS SCORCHING AND FIERY BREATH. WITH HIM FELL THE OTHER GENERAL, WHO WAS WITH THE COLUMN, AND ALL THE MEN WHO WERE LEADING IT ON. AND, AS A LAST RESOURCE, KEANE BROUGHT UP HIS STALWART HIGHLANDERS, BUT IN VAIN THE STUBBORN MARONIERS RUSHED ON, ONLY TO DIE AS THEIR COMRADES HAD DIED BEFORE THEM, WITH UNCONQUERABLE COURAGE, FACING THE FOE TO THE LAST, Keene himself was struck down and the shattered wrecks of the british column quailing before certain destruction turned and sought refuge beyond reach of the leaden death that overwhelmed their comrades nor did it fare better with the weaker force that was to assail the right of the american line this was led by the dashing colonel Rene, who when the confusion caused by the main attack was at its height rushed forward with impetuous bravery along the river bank with such headlong fury did he make the assault that the rush of his troops took the outlying redoubt whose defenders regulars and artillerymen fought to the last with their bayonets and clubbed muskets and were butchered to a man without delay rennie flung his men at the breastworks behind and gallantly leading them sword in hand he and all around him fell riddled through and through by the balls of the riflemen brave though they were the british soldiers could not stand against the singing leaden hail for if they stood it was but to die so in rout and wild dismay they fled back along the river bank to the main army for some time afterward THE BRITISH ARTILLERY KEPT UP ITS FIRE, BUT WAS GRADUALLY SILENCED. THE REPULSE WAS ENTIRE AND COMPLETE ALONG THE WHOLE LINE. NOR DID THE CHEERING NEWS OF SUCCESS BROUGHT FROM THE WEST BANK GIVE ANY HOPE TO THE BRITISH COMMANDERS, STUNNED BY THEIR CRUSHING OVERTHROW, FOOTNOTE. ACCORDING TO THEIR OFFICIAL RETURNS, THE BRITISH LOSS WAS TWO THOUSAND THIRTY-SIX. THE AMERICAN ACCOUNTS, OF COURSE, MAKE IT MUCH GREATER. Latour is the only trustworthy American contemporary historian of this war, and even he at times absurdly exaggerates the British force and loss. Most of the other American histories of that period were the most preposterously bombastic works that ever saw print. But as regards this battle, none of them are as bad as even such British historians as Alison, the exact reverse being the case in many other battles, notably Lake Erie. The devices each author adopts to lessen the seeming force of his side are generally of much the same character. For instance, Lutour says that 800 of Jackson's men were employed on works at the rear, on guard duty, etc., and deducts them. James, for precisely similar reasons, deducts 853 men by such means one reduces jackson's total force to four thousand and the other gives packenham but seventy three hundred only two thousand americans were actually engaged on the east banks and footnote meanwhile colonel thornton's attack on the opposite side had been successful but had been delayed beyond the originally intended hour the sides of the canal by which the boats were to be brought through to the Mississippi caved in, and choked the passage. Footnote, Codrington, volume 1, page 386, end footnote. So that only enough got through to take over a half of Thornton's force. With these, 700 in number. Footnote, James says 298 soldiers and about 200 sailors. But Admiral Cochrane in his letter, january eighteenth says six hundred men half sailors and admiral codrington also page three thirty five gives this number three hundred being sailors adding thirteen and one-third percent for the officers sergeants and trumpeters we get six hundred eighty men and a footnote he crossed but as he did not allow for the current it carried him down about two miles below the proper landing place meanwhile general morgan having under him eight hundred militia footnote seven hundred ninety six le tour pages one hundred sixty four to one hundred seventy two and a footnote whom it was of the utmost importance to have kept together promptly divided them and sent three hundred of the rawest and most poorly armed down to meet the enemy in the open The inevitable result was their immediate rout and dispersion. About one hundred got back to Morgan's lines. He then had six hundred men, all militia, to oppose to seven hundred regulars. So he stationed the four hundred best-disciplined men to defend the two hundred yards of strong breastworks, mounting three guns which covered his left, while the two hundred worst-disciplined were placed to guard six hundred yards of open ground on his right, with their flank resting in air, and entirely unprotected. Footnote: Report of Court of Inquiry, Major General William Carroll presiding. And footnote: This truly phenomenal arrangement ensured beforehand the certain defeat of his troops, no matter how well they fought. But as it turned out, they hardly fought at all thornton pushing up the river first attacked the breastwork in front but was checked by a hot fire deploying his men he then sent a strong force to march round and take morgan on his exposed right flank footnote letter of colonel w thornton january 8, eighth eighteen fifteen and of footnote there the already demoralized kentucky militia extended in thin order across an open space outnumbered and taken in flank by regular troops were stampeded at once and after firing a single volley they took to their heels footnote letter of commodore patterson january thirteenth eighteen fifteen and a footnote this exposed the flank of the better disciplined creoles who were also put to flight but they kept some order and were soon rallied footnote Allison outdoes himself in recounting this feat having reduced the british force to three hundred forty men he says they captured the redoubt though defended by twenty-two guns and seventeen hundred men of course it was physically impossible for the water battery to take part in the defence so there were but three guns and by having the force on one side and trebling it on the other he makes the relative strength of the americans just sixfold what it was, and is faithfully followed by other British writers and a footnote. In bitter rage, Patterson spiked the guns of his water battery and marched off with his sailors unmolested. The American loss had been slight, and that of their opponents not heavy, though among their dangerously wounded was Colonel Thornton. This success, though a brilliant one, and a disgrace to the american arms had no effect on the battle jackson at once sent over reinforcements under the famous french general humbert and preparations were forthwith made to retake the lost position but it was already abandoned and the force that had captured it had been recalled by lambert when he found that the place could not be held without additional troops the british colonel dixon who had been sent over to inspect reported that two thousand men would be needed to hold the battery so lambert ordered the british to retire lambert's letter january tenth and a footnote. the total british loss on both sides of the river amounted to over two thousand men the vast majority of whom had fallen in the attack on the tennesseeans and most of the remainder in the attack made by colonel rennie the americans had lost but seventy men of whom but thirteen fell in the main attack on the east bank neither the creole militia nor the forty-fourth regiment had taken any part in the combat the english had thrown for high stakes and had lost everything and they knew it there was nothing to hope for left nearly a fourth of their fighting men had fallen and among the officers the proportion was far larger of their four generals packenham was dead gibbs dying king disabled and only lambert left their leader the ablest officers and all the flower of their bravest men were lying stark and dead on the bloody plain before them and their bodies were doomed to crumble into moldering dust on the green fields where they had fought and had fallen it was useless to make another trial they had learned to their bitter cost that no troops however steady could advance over open ground against such a fire as came from jackson's lines their artillerymen had three times tried conclusions with the american gunners and each time they had been forced to acknowledge themselves worsted they would never have another chance to repeat their flank attack for jackson had greatly strengthened and enlarged the works on the west bank and had seen that they were fully manned and ably commanded moreover no sooner had the assault failed than the americans again began their old harassing warfare the heaviest cannon both from the breastwork and the water-battery played on the british camp both night and day giving the army no rest and the mounted riflemen kept up a trifling but incessant and annoying skirmishing with their pickets and outposts the british could not advance and it was worse than useless for them to stay where they were for though they from time to time were reinforced yet jackson's forces augmented faster than theirs and every day lessened the numerical inequality between the two armies there was but one thing left to do and that was to retreat they had no fear of being attacked in turn the british soldiers were made of too good stuff to be in the least cowed or cast down even by such a slaughtering defeat as they had just suffered and nothing would have given them keener pleasure than to have had a fair chance at their adversaries in the open but this chance was just what jackson had no idea of giving them his own army though in part as good as any army could be consisted also in part of untrained militia while not a quarter of his men had bayonets and the wary old chief for all his hardihood had far too much wit to hazard such a force in fight with a superior number of seasoned veterans thoroughly equipped unless on his own ground and in his own manner so he contented himself with keeping a sharp watch on lambert and on the night of january eighteenth the latter deserted his position and made a very skilful and rapid retreat leaving eighty wounded men and fourteen pieces of cannon behind him footnote letter of general jackson january nineteenth and of general lambert january twenty eighth end of footnote a few stragglers were captured on land and while the troops were embarking a number of barges with over a hundred prisoners were cut out by some american seamen in rowboats but the bulk of the army reached the transports unmolested at the same time a squadron of vessels which had been unsuccessfully bombarding fort st philip for a week or two and had been finally driven off when the fort got a mortar large enough to reach them with also returned and the whole fleet set sail for mobile the object was to capture fort bowyer which contained less than four hundred men and though formidable on its seafront footnote towards the sea its fortifications are respectable enough but on the land side it is little better than a blockhouse the ramparts being composed of sand not much more than 3 feet in thickness and faced with plank are barely cannon-proof while a sand hill rising within pistol-shot of the ditch completely commands it Within, again, it is as much wanting in accommodation as it is in strength. There are no bomb-proof barracks, nor any hole or arch, under which men might find protection from shells. Indeed, so deficient is it in common lodging-rooms that great part of the garrison sleep in tents. With the reduction of this trifling work, all hostilities ended. Gleig, page 357 general jackson impliedly censures the garrison for surrendering so quickly but in such a fort it was absolutely impossible to act otherwise and not the slightest stain rests upon the fort's defenders End of footnote. was incapable of defence when regularly attacked on its land side the british landed february eighth some fifteen hundred men broke ground and made approaches FOR FOUR DAYS THE WORK WENT ON AMID A CONTINUAL FIRE WHICH KILLED OR WOUNDED ELEVEN AMERICANS AND THIRTY-ONE BRITISH. BY THAT TIME THE BATTERING GUNS WERE IN POSITION AND THE FORT CAPITULATED. February 12TH, THE GARRISON MARCHING OUT WITH THE HONORS OF WAR. IMMEDIATELY AFTERWARD THE NEWS OF PEACE ARRIVED AND ALL HOSTILITIES TERMINATED. IN SPITE OF THE LAST TRIFLING SUCCESS. The campaign had been to the British both bloody and disastrous. It did not affect the results of the war, and the decisive battle itself was a perfectly useless shedding of blood, for peace had been declared before it was fought. Nevertheless, it was not only glorious, but profitable to the United States. Louisiana was saved from being severely ravaged, and New Orleans from possible destruction and after our humiliating defeats in trying to repel the invasions of Virginia and Maryland, the signal victory of New Orleans was really almost a necessity for the preservation of the national honor. This campaign was the great event of the war, and in it was fought the most important battle as regards numbers that took place during the entire struggle and the fact that we were victorious not only saved our self-respect at home but also gave us prestige abroad which we should otherwise have totally lacked it could not be said to entirely balance the numerous defeats that we had elsewhere suffered on land defeats which had so far only been offset by harrison's victory in eighteen thirteen and the campaign in lower canada in 1814, but it at any rate went a long way toward making the score even. Jackson is certainly by all odds the most prominent figure that appeared during this war, and stands head and shoulders above any other commander, American or British, that it produced. It will be difficult in all history to show a parallel to the feat that he performed. In three weeks' fighting, with a force largely composed of militia he utterly defeated and drove away an army twice the size of his own composed of veteran troops and led by one of the ablest european generals during the whole campaign he only erred once and that was in putting general morgan a very incompetent officer in command of the forces on the west bank he suited his movements admirably to the various agencies that arose the promptness and skill with which he attacked as soon as he knew of the near approach of the british undoubtedly saved the city for their vanguard was so roughly handled that instead of being able to advance at once they were forced to delay three days during which time jackson entrenched himself in a position from which he was never driven but after this attack the offensive would have been not only hazardous but useless, and, accordingly, Jackson, adopting the mode of warfare which best suited the ground he was on and the troops he had under him, forced the enemy always to fight him where he was strongest and confined himself strictly to the pure defensive, a system condemned by most European authorities. Footnote. Though Napier says, Volume 5, page 25, Salt fared as most generals will, who seek by extensive lines to supply the want of numbers or of hardiness in the troops against rude commanders and undisciplined soldiers, lines may avail seldom against accomplished commanders, never when the assailants are the better soldiers, and again page one hundred and fifty offensive operations must be the basis of a good defensive system and a footnote, but which has at times succeeded to admiration in america as witness fredericksburg Gettysburg, kennesaw mountain and franklin moreover it must be remembered that jackson's success was in no wise owing either to chance or to the errors of his adversary footnote, The reverse has been stated again and again with very great injustice, not only by British, but even by American writers, as, for example, Professor W. G. Sumner in his Andrew Jackson as a Public Man, Boston, 1882. The climax of absurdity is reached by Major McDougall, who says, as quoted by Cole in his Memoirs of British Generals, Volume 2, page 364, sir edward packenham fell not after an utter and disastrous defeat but at the very moment when the arms of victory were extended towards him and by james who says volume Two, page three hundred eighty eight the premature fall of a british general saved an american city these assertions are just on a par with those made by american writers that "'Only the fall of Lawrence prevented the Chesapeake "'from capturing the Shannon. "'British writers have always attributed the defeat "'largely to the fact that the 44th Regiment, "'which was to have led the attack with fascines and ladders, "'did not act well. "'I doubt if this had any effect on the result. "'Some few of the men with ladders did reach the ditch, "'but were shot down at once.' and their fate would have been shared by any others who had been with them the bulk of the column was never able to advance through the fire up to the breastwork and all the ladders and fascines in christendom would not have helped it there will always be innumerable excuses offered for any defeat but on this occasion the truth is simply that the british regulars found they could not advance in the open against a fire more deadly than they had ever before encountered, and footnote. As far as fortune favoured either side, it was that of the British. Footnote, for example, the unexpected frost made the swamps firm for them to advance through, the river being so low when the levee was cut, the bayous were filled instead of the British being drowned out, the carolina was only blown up because the wind happened to fail her bad weather delayed the advance of arms and reinforcements etc etc and pakenham left nothing undone to accomplish his aim and made no movements that his experience in european war did not justify his making There is not the slightest reason for supposing that any other British general would have accomplished more or have fared better than he did. Footnote. He was the next man to look to after Lord Wellington. Codrington, volume 1, page 339. End of footnote. Of course, Jackson owed much to the nature of the ground on which he fought. But the opportunities it afforded "'would have been useless in the hands of any general "'less ready, hardy, and skilful than Old Hickory. "'A word as to the troops themselves. "'The British infantry was at that time the best in Europe, "'the French coming next. Pakenham's soldiers had formed part of Wellington's "'magnificent Peninsula Army, "'and they lost nothing of their honour at New Orleans.' their conduct throughout was admirable their steadiness in the night battle their patience through the various hardships they had to undergo their stubborn courage in action and the undaunted front they showed in time of disaster for at the very end they were to the full as ready and eager to fight as at the beginning all showed that their soldierly qualities were of the highest order AS MUCH CANNOT BE SAID OF THE BRITISH ARTILLERY, WHICH, THOUGH VERY BRAVELY FOUGHT, WAS CLEARLY BY NO MEANS AS skilfully HANDLED AS WAS THE CASE WITH THE AMERICAN GUNS. THE COURAGE OF THE BRITISH OFFICERS OF ALL ARMS IS MOURNFULLY ATTESTED BY THE SADLY LARGE PROPORTION THEY BORE TO THE TOTAL ON THE LISTS OF THE KILLED AND WOUNDED. AN EVEN GREATER MEED OF PRAISE IS DUE TO THE AMERICAN SOLDIERS, FOR IT MUST NOT BE FORGOTTEN that they were raw troops opposed to veterans. And indeed nothing but Jackson's tireless care in drilling them could have brought them into shape at all. The regulars were just as good as the British, and no better. The Kentucky militia, who had only been 48 hours with the Army and were badly armed and totally undisciplined, proved as useless as their brethren of New York and Virginia, at queenstown heights and bladensburg had previously shown themselves to be they would not stand in the open at all and even behind a breastwork had to be mixed with better men the louisiana militia fighting in defence of their homes and well trained behaved excellently and behind breastworks were as formidable as the regulars the Tennesseans, good men to start with and already well trained in actual warfare under Jackson, were in their own way unsurpassable as soldiers. In the open field, the British regulars, owing to their greater skill in manoeuvring and to their having bayonets, with which the Tennesseans were unprovided, could in all likelihood have beaten them, but in rough or broken ground, the skill of the Tennesseans, both as marksmen and woodsmen, would probably have given them the advantage. While the extreme deadliness of their fire made it far more dangerous to attempt to storm a breastwork guarded by these forest riflemen than it would have been to attack the same work guarded by an equal number of the best regular troops of Europe, the American soldiers deserve great credit for doing so well but greater credit still belongs to andrew jackson who with his cool head and quick eye his stout heart and a strong hand stands out in history as the ablest general the united states produced from the outbreak of the revolution down to the beginning of the great rebellion end of part twenty recording by james carson the naval war of eighteen twelve by Theodore Roosevelt.